Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. On September 11, 2012, armed rebels representing the jihadist Ansar al-Sharia attacked an American diplomatic compound in the Libyan city of Benghazi. Greatly outnumbered, a contingent of American security contractors valiantly held off the attack for over 13 hours. At the end of the fighting, countless Libyans and four Americans were dead, including a U.S. ambassador. Now with the 2016 election looming in the distance, lingering questions still remain and the city's name will forever live in infamy. On this episode, we discuss the Battle of Benghazi. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is the Season 5 premiere of Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our season premiere of Wartime. I'm your host, as always, Brady Kreitzer. On season five of the series, we're discussing battlegrounds, studying the who, what, where, when, and why of some of the most famous conflicts in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared. What else? And as always, you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on our new Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer, on my author's website for news, updates, appearances, and events, bradykreitzer.com, and your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. At the end of Season 4, one thing I found was that we received a great deal of feedback and criticism and recommendations and advice about how the show's been going, and one of the things that I really found interesting was that Season 4 allowed us to explore a number of different topics, really catering to the interests of a lot of different people. We got away from the chronological narrative that we had done in the first three seasons, and we talked about different places, everywhere from uh, Africa to Mesoamerica to, of course, Europe uh, and the United States. And there was really, I think, something for everyone in Season 4. And honestly, I like that as well. You know, one thing for me I can say is that it always kept it interesting. We always picked uh, a topic from your recommendations, and we'll do that again here in Season 5. And it always let us sort of, you know, flex those mental muscles we don't get to very often when we think about history. Uh, Not worried about what happens next every year. We can talk about all sorts of different characters and different places. Uh, And I really like that, so I'm glad we can continue that tradition here in Season 5. Believe it or not, we're over 65 episodes now, so at about an hour apiece, uh, that's some seriously impressive free content. Of course, your contributions always help. Visit wartimepodcast.com for uh, information about how you can contribute. Uh, it really helps go a long way for hosting this, uh, the websites and the, and the podcast and all of the technical stuff I really learned as we went. I like to talk about things on this show that are topical. You know, that's the one thing I hear from people, whether they be uh, people who read my books or my students, is that they never really thought history was still relevant in a lot of cases. 
Uh, and whether we're talking about the American Civil War or the fall of the Roman Empire or any number of things, uh, they always said uh, that to, to them, I made it more relevant. And I never meant to. You know, that's just one of the benefits of being a historian is you can't get away from relevance. But I thought here in Season 5 would really start off with a bang in terms of a subject that is fairly recent, but still history. And that will be very, very important in the year to come. This is being recorded in December of 2015. You're going to hear a lot about the Battle of Benghazi in 2016. Now, already, I'm willing to guess, when you saw the title of this episode, you probably thought you had it figured out. Here we go again. Uh, Benghazi may be the single most divisive term uh, in American politics today. But what I want to do is strip away the politics, strip away the he said, she said, strip away the blame, and look at this event for what it is, a battle. As historians, we don't like to talk about things like bravery and heroism and courage because everybody who goes into a battle on either side typically thinks they're the good guys and engaging in combat is something that takes extraordinary moral courage. I never did it. If you have, thank you for your service, of course. Uh, but bravery, that's a difficult thing to talk about. And there is a movie coming out in the weeks to come called 13 Hours, uh, also based on a book. And I read that uh, during my preparation for this season, last few weeks ago. And, you know, I talked about that length on social media, but it astounded me. The level of bravery and heroism and duty shown in that battle. Uh, considering that these people knew that no one was watching. You know, we'll talk about who the men who fought in Benghazi were on both sides from what we know, and we'll talk about who was who was there to see it. And these were guys that were, in a lot of ways, supposed to be invisible. Uh, and they did things out of duty, uh, out of, uh, perhaps you can say, habit, which is a good habit to have, that in some cases cost them their lives. But... It's an incredible event, and the one thing that, that really galls me about, about the way we talk about it is we've made it a wedge issue. If you support Hillary Clinton, the last thing you want to hear about is Benghazi. If you despise Hillary Clinton, it's the first thing you're going to hear about in terms of an argument against her candidacy for president, but the thing is, and that's what I'm hopeful about this movie. I haven't seen it yet. I'm recording this about a month before it's released. I hope people can strip that away, that white noise, and just talk about the event. Because it's overwhelming. And it's very revealing. And again, it's it's very much, I think, uh, representative of the world we live in. So I wanted to begin Season 5 with a real attention grabber. Really what this season can be. I'm not talking about, you know... Little Round Top, and Bunker Hill. Uh, I mean, I'm really talking about how battles change perceptions and why battles happen. You know, battles don't just fall from the sky. It's not like armies are just random, randomly uh, crossing the world and they bump into each other and fight. You know, there are serious social causes and political decisions behind battles all the time. And that's one thing I want to get across to uh, you this season on wartime. Don't just look at the battle. We're really bad about this in the way we study the American Civil War. Don't just look at the battle. 
I mean, the battle's important, but look at what got you there and what it changed. Put it in context. I mean, that's why you're here, right? You're here because you're just like me. You see something, you want to know more. You want to expand on it. Um, so we're going to talk about Benghazi today on this episode, hopefully in, a, in an adult way. Um, and if this does sway your decision one way or another in the 2016 presidential election, if you're an American, so be it. I don't mean to do that, but the facts are the facts. And we've used this term so much and, and I think politicized it so much. We allowed to happen the one thing that really can't. And it's to dishonor the memory of the men who fought there and the men who died there. So let's talk Benghazi. If you've heard the term Benghazi, you may not know where it is or why it's relevant. So I want to spend the first part of this episode talking about Libya and more specifically the city of Benghazi itself. If you can visualize Libya, its entire northern border sits on the Mediterranean Sea. And if you listen to season two of wartime, and we talked about the importance of the Mediterranean Sea to the development of Europe and the Middle East as a whole, you'll know that's very relevant. Because when you sit on the Mediterranean coastline, you instantly become a place of attraction uh, and importance for a major network of trade that extends literally thousands of years. So if you want to go back to the beginning of Benghazi, believe it or not, the Greeks originally colonized there. And fast forward even more, the Romans were there. And fast forward to modern day, uh, you would see the Italians as the first, uh, I guess you could say Europeans, in the 20th century uh, to colonize that area and move there on a large scale. I mean, I think by the time you hit 1911, there's something like 30% of the population of Benghazi are Italians. But geography is really important here because Libya is basically divided in half, east and west. That's easy enough. The capital of the east, closer to Egypt, uh, is Benghazi. The capital of the west, closer to Tunisia, is Tripoli. And this tale of two cities is not necessarily a tale of equals. Eastern Libya, Benghazi being its heart, really develops a reputation, even as early as 1903, 1910, 1920, as a place of trouble. It's known as a place that you cannot easily control. I mean, when Italy loses this place, it's because of World War II. They can't get out of there fast enough. The British find, after they capture it, after the Battle of Al Alamein, that they can't control it. And they bomb Benghazi relentlessly during World War II. So it has a reputation as sort of being the unruly second brother of Libya, compared to the western capital of Tripoli, which is very metropolitan and very cosmopolitan, and viewed to be sort of a... a a modern 20th century city. Well, fast forward to the 1970s and 80s. You see Libya taken over by a dictator named Muammar Gaddafi. And to make it easy, because I think more Americans are familiar with this name, think of him like Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Muammar Gaddafi is a military dictator. He is a secular dictator. That is to say, he rules with an iron fist, he is not particularly good to his people, he's corrupt, he's violent, but the one thing he isn't, 
and this is true about Saddam Hussein as well, he wasn't openly religious. That is to say, he did not buy into a lot of this stuff we see about religion in the Middle East that is so unsettling to us, the, the, the sectarian violence and the Sharia law and these sorts of things. But he was very openly against the United States, and he had been on the American hit list, so to speak, for a very long time. Now, fast forward even more to 2011, you begin to see what we call the Arab Spring, which is this uh, natural movement that sort of develops from the grassroots and turns into a groundswell against military dictators all over the Middle East. Uh, the United States took out Saddam Hussein and replaced him with a government of a democratic nature. And because of that, I think, you see these sort of democracies pop up in Tunisia and Egypt and uh, Libya. So the United States took it upon themselves in 2011 uh, to empower this groundswell against Muammar Gaddafi and take him out. Remove him. He's been a thorn in our side for a long time. And although this wasn't really our thing, uh, we certainly supported it. So we put CIA intelligence operatives on the ground in Libya. Just between you and me. Uh, and we flood Libya with weapons and guns and ammunition. And we teach the rebels how to use them and when they should use them, where they should strike and how. And we didn't really think to ask what these people wanted to replace Gaddafi with. We just knew that Gaddafi was going to be gone. And that was good for us. So, I'm not going to say it was like Iraq, where literally American troops took Muammar Gaddafi out of power, but, you know, we were launching conveniently timed missile strikes from the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, the French were as well. Uh, he was a guy that the West believed would be better off without him. And that's going to be important. Because once he's out of power, we view that as a victory. France and Britain view that as a victory. Uh, but the issue is, we really didn't spend too much time or enough time thinking about who was going to fill that void, that power vacuum uh, that Muammar Gaddafi left behind. You see, the Americans should have known this. They should have learned their lesson about Benghazi. Believe it or not, in 1967, an American consulate was attacked by... Uh, sort of riotous rebels, and ultimately saved by a column of, of British soldiers. I mean, that should be your first thought, right? This is a place you don't want to get involved with. And by the way, the rebellion against Muammar Gaddafi in 2011 was not entirely based in Benghazi, but Benghazi was considered by everybody in Libya to be the anti-Gaddafi wing of the country, and it was very much the heart, I would say, of that movement. After 2011, we make the decision that with Gaddafi gone, the United States needs to be more involved in ramping things up, making sure Libya falls on the right path. So again, we have intelligence agents operating in the country, but we have ambassadors in that country. We have um, diplomatic officials in that country. And one of them is a man named J. Christopher Stevens from California. Stevens has a deep love, and I think I could say that, for Libya and for the outcome of the Libyan people. And I think for the most part, the Libyan people appreciated what he was doing. He worked his way up to ambassador 
by the year 2012, which is a very big deal. An ambassador of Libya is not an easy job. You know, I'm from Pittsburgh. Whenever Barack Obama was first running for office, and this isn't unheard of, it happens with all presidents, the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, Dan Rooney, endorsed him, and because of that, he conveniently became the ambassador to Ireland. That's a pretty cake job. You know, Ireland isn't having as many problems in 2010 that it was even 30 years earlier, but ambassador to Libya is a tough job. But the Americans have to walk a fine line throughout this whole thing. And the fine line is they want to help the Libyans along. They want to be supportive of the Libyans, but they don't want it to appear as though they were directing this whole movement. So as Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton has basically established a policy that we will sort of be very light-handed in the way we deal, deal with Libya. We're not going to have massive security details rolling through the country. Again, this is not an occupation. I mean, that was all very important to the Obama administration. And I'm critical of that. You know, I, 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 it's no secret. Um, uh, if there's one policy I'm critical of, and this is true for George W. Bush, and it's true for Barack Obama because it's the same policy. It's this idea of intervening in Middle Eastern civil wars, civil wars in the Arab and Muslim world, taking out dictators, flooding these places with weapons before we really thoroughly vet who these rebels are. I mean, it happened in Libya, it happened in Iraq. Those are the two real success stories. And of course, I use that facetiously. So again, this isn't a Democrat-Republican thing for me. Their fingerprints, both of them, were all over this. But that's the mindset at the time. Now, our official embassy in Libya, the official American embassy, no surprise here, is in the western capital of Tripoli. More modern city, better roads, better airport. But one thing about Ambassador J. Christopher Stevens was he always wanted to show that rebellious half of Libya, that other side, that eastern side, that Benghazi-centric side, that he cared about them too. Because if you look at the history of Libya, it's very easy. Tripoli and the west got everything, and Benghazi in the east got very little. So that is one thing, I think, to his credit, that Stevens wanted to do. He wanted to spend a lot of time in Benghazi. Now, the Americans didn't have an embassy in Benghazi. Uh, what they had was something that the news media calls a consulate, but technically that's not even right either. Um, consulate is just the best word the American news media can come up with without having to explain it all the time. But really all this was was a compound. Uh, the Americans rented a home, it was a villa, from a very wealthy Libyan man who didn't live in the area anymore. It was about uh, 300 yards by 100 yards it had a wall around it, but this wasn't a defensive wall. You know, this isn't uh, a military fort. This is a guy's home. There's a, a one-story uh, villa with a pool. There's a soccer field within this 300 by 100 yard space. Again, it's not much to speak of. And, and Stevens, the ambassador, knew this was not well defended. He wanted more security. He regularly asked for more security. But again, go back to that policy the State Department has. They wanted to be very light in terms of their presence in Benghazi. Now, a couple things about Benghazi. Again, the northern border of the city is the Mediterranean Sea. 
So there were some hopes by the early Italian visitors that this could be a, hey, a swinging resort town, you know, sort of like a uh, an Acapulco in Libya. And no matter how you spin it, you don't want to vacation in Libya. No offense to the Libyans, but Western sensibilities would be offended by that, I think, to say it in a very politically correct way. But the city of Benghazi itself sort of builds itself moving from the sea. Benghazi is laid out in a series of concentric rings that kind of look like, and the only way I can describe it, is an upside-down rainbow. And from the sea, you have uh, these sort of half-circles of highways that extend further and further and further out, like if you had a bullseye target and cut it in half, and you just stuck the bottom half uh, along the sea. That's what Benghazi looks like. And about right in the middle of it is where this diplomatic compound sits. And again, it's it's very centrally located. But one of the problems about the way the city's laid out, each of those concentric half-circle rings I told you about uh, are really sort of difficult for traveling. I mean, if you are a person who wants to isolate a whole wing of the city, all you have to do is control one of those rings, and you control basically everything inside of it. And that's going to be important moving forward. So if this place is such a security risk, and it was, uh, how did the American government make sure the people there were safe? Well, they had a number of what they believed to be fail-safes in place. As it turned out, none of them were fail-safes at all that they believe would be effective. Number one, they had uh, State Department security forces. These were Americans in the compound at all time. And to protect names and identities, again, you can find that in the 13 Hours book or the new movie. I'm not going to go into that. Uh, the State Department staff uh, was there at all times, and they were armed. They also used, and this, is, this sounds unbelievable, but it goes to show why it's so difficult to operate in the Islamic Maghreb, in the North African world. Uh, again, trying to be sort of light-handed, trying to incorporate yourself into the future of a country without directing it. They also used local officials and sort of grease their pockets to make them feel like they're part of it for security. And I'm not kidding. The man who owned the villa basically made an arrangement with the U.S. government that they could use it only if his cousins could get well-paying jobs as chiefs of security for the area. So the U.S. government put their faith in this local leader to secure the compound with his own family, basically, to get a check from, from the U.S. government. There was also a group of people providing security uh, that were known as the uh, February 17th Martyrs. These are local Libyans, and these are local Libyans on the American side. They fought against Gaddafi. They were not radicals. They were legitimate, if that exists, freedom fighters. So the 17 February militia, the 17 February martyrs, will provide some of the protection. There's also a group called the Blue Mountain Boys. Uh, they were more tied to this local leader that the Americans rented the villa from. And then you had this annex, then you had this uh, State Department security staff. Now, the real, uh, I think, uh, security for this place was never located inside of the compound at all, but it was located about 300 yards away. And these were people that were supposed to be invisible. Think about that. 
you weren't supposed to know they were there. If you saw them, you weren't supposed to know what they were doing. These people were uh, private security guards. All of them uh, former American servicemen. Navy SEALs, Special Forces, serious guys. Uh, and we're not going to go into numbers and details. There weren't many, but they were there too. And they were located at a separate building a few blocks away. That, again, uh, for the sake of confidentiality, reports will only call the CIA Annex. We'll call it the Annex. It makes a, a little more sense that way. So they're away from the compound. They're watching this. And all the while, uh, this is the basic setup they have. And again, the less you see these guys, former American servicemen, not current. This is you know, somewhat of an important distinction. Uh, they were not active duty military. They're retired. Uh, or they had served their time and they were out um, making money privately on their own, contracting to um, the Central Intelligence Agency. And they, by all accounts, and they would admit it, they're the first to admit it. They were paid well. I mean... The Americans still use this system, um, something like $150,000 a year uh, to put their very special skill set to use in different places. But again, security. They'll escort important officials. They will secure buildings. I mean, these guys aren't commandos anymore. That is, they're not raiding homes. They're just making sure important bigwigs get from one area to another and stay safe. So that's going to be the real heart of this story, I think. These uh, security contractors, these private officials who are in a CIA annex only uh, about, again, 300 yards from the actual Benghazi consulate itself. Now, you always have the benefit in history of hindsight, right? Hindsight's 2020. I think when people do hear this story, they often sort of buy into this idea that this attack happened at random. It was unexpected. Nobody saw this coming. Um, but I'm just going to read you a list, and I will read them because I think you have to hear them, of what was going on in the months leading up to September 11, 2012, when we see this attack at Benghazi. In April of 2012, two former security guards for the consulate, again local Libyans, throw an improvised explosive device over the consulate fence, no casualties. That's not a good sign. In May of 2012, an Al-Qaeda affiliate will attack the International Red Cross office in Benghazi. August 6th, the International Red Cross uh, suspends all operations. They are, quote, extremely concerned about escalating violence in Libya. Remember, this is after Gaddafi's gone. And most of the weapons being used against these people were given to the Libyans by the West. So that's important, too. Uh, let's see. Uh, the British ambassador to Libya on June 10th survives an assassination attempt. Uh, two British protection officers are injured when a convoy is hit by a rocket-propelled grenade 300 yards from the consulate office. Uh, the British will officially withdraw all foreign staff from Benghazi uh, by late June. And again, we're talking about September. Uh, in June 18, 2012, the Tunisian consulate in Benghazi stormed by individuals affiliated with a group called Ansar al-Sharia Libya. Uh because of recent attacks, quote, by Tunisian artists against Islam. Even the day of the attack we're talking about, September of 2012, uh, two constant security guards are spotted, spot a man in a Libyan police uniform taking pictures of the consulate with his cell phone 
and running shortly after he's noticed. So again, there are some pretty serious indicators that the situation in Libya is not stable. Um, especially again, in and around the Benghazi consulate. But again, only in hindsight, do we consider this as a major, a major warning sign. So let's get to the battle itself. Here's what we're going to have uh, at about 9:40 PM. Again, if you want to say out of nowhere, uh, a group of men, about 150 of them, most of them armed, many of them wearing uh, Kevlar and body armor, will storm this consulate, uh, breaking through the outer fence. When this happens, there are a handful of American diplomatic corps in the, in the consulate, including the Ambassador J. Christopher Stevens. Uh, when the battle attack begins... Right away, you can see who's largely responsible. There was a group within Libya during the Libyan Civil War called Ansar al-Sharia. Uh, and they had a lot of weapons from the Americans. And a lot of the men who are attacking at this point, 9.40 p.m. September 11th, 2012, are clearly a part of that. They're armed with any number of deadly weapons, rocket-propelled grenades, hand grenades, AK-47s, uh, F-2000 assault rifles, uh, heavy guns mounted on the backs of trucks. Again, it's this is a, a, an attack that is a surprise, uh, but in hindsight, had been brewing, I think, for some time. It was no coincidence that the American ambassador was in the consulate at the time. He was there to open a new hospital in Benghazi. They clearly knew he was going to be there, and they clearly knew that this would be the best time to attack. J. Christopher Stevens uh, will be killed. In this attack, he'll be the first American ambassador killed in almost 40 years. Whenever the attack begins, Stevens and a man named Sean Smith, who both work for the uh, State Department, will flee into the main villa of the consulate. And they'll lock themselves in a safe room. Again, this is not a fort. It's a private villa. But that safe room, which they enter about 9.40 p.m., really could have or should have been enough to prevent any serious bodily harm happening to them. Uh, given the circumstances that were around them, bullets and explosives, they would have been okay. And again, about 10 p.m., these rebels, these Ansar al-Sharia uh, uh, militants enter uh, the villa where Stevens is staying and pour uh, gasoline, petroleum, oil, uh, all over the building and light it on fire. This leaks in through the doorway. It fills uh, the entire villa with smoke. And both Sean Smith and Chris Stevens uh, will be overcome by the smoke. So, again, you know, if we could avoid using names, I would like to. But I think it's important we know these names. Just because of what it represents. While this is going on. Uh, Annex security is trying valiantly to fight these men off. They're severely outmatched. Again, about 300 yards away, you have the CIA Annex filled with these private security contractors. Uh, they see that they're in trouble. They are very anxious to the point of screaming that they need to be there to liberate, to save this consulate. But the top CIA operative, the top man in Benghazi, who's not even supposed to be there. This is a secret. We don't even know his name to this day. Uh, we call him Bob. Uh, tells them repeatedly, they cannot pursue. Uh, he'll tell them things like, you are not the first line of defense. 
and Bob's thinking was, again, once they're revealed, once they go into public, it's very clear the CIA is operating in Libya, which they weren't supposed to be. Uh, and what this top CIA operative is telling these security contractors is, you have the February 17th martyr militia there, you have these Blue Mountain security, all local Libyan forces. They are the ones that should be handling this. Plus, you do have State Department staff in the consulate itself. That goes on for a while. Eventually, uh, the security contractors are able to make their way via SUVs to the consulate. Uh, by the time they get there, tragically, Ambassador Stevens and Sean Smith have both lost their lives. Now, there is, uh, I think, a bright spot that comes out of this. Because, again, these men are trained professional soldiers, Navy SEALs, Special Forces. They're actually able to rescue several Americans who are still in the compound, get them in these SUVs, and take them about 300 yards away to the CIA annex. Now, during this time, an American drone is able to reach the location, uh, putting eyes on the event. So um, you can watch this in the White House. They are watching this. From what we understand, there are very few, if any, military options to help these people besides who was on the ground. Uh, there were groups in Italy, American soldiers, uh, that could have flown in and helped them, but it would take something like nine hours to get there. It wasn't feasible. The closest option there is, is the embassy in Tripoli. There are security contractors there as well. Again, these are not American soldiers on duty anymore. These are security contractors. They could help. They'll get in a plane. They'll come as well. By now, the fighting has died down because these contractors have gotten several of the Americans trapped in the, in the compound out safely in the CIA annex. By the time that the Tripoli group gets there, it's about 4 a.m. People in Washington understand this is going on. Christopher Stevens' body has yet to be found by the Americans. Uh, as it turned out, after the attack, many of what we would say uh, pro-U.S. or friendly Libyans uh, actually found Stephen's body and took him to a hospital. And by all accounts, by the time he uh, was found, he may have still been alive. So I believe the official cause of death might have been cardiac arrest. Uh, but he was taken to this hospital where he would, again, unfortunately perish as a result of this attack. But at the CIA annex, again, about 300 yards away from the official compound, this sort of secret building, uh, the secret is clearly out. There are about 30 to 32 Americans uh, that are non-combatants in this structure. Uh, and there are these security contractors and State Department security officials there protecting them. Now, by this point, there's very few options. And one of the only options there is for escaping this is to just abandon the city. Well, the problem is you have about 40 people who need to be moved from a very dangerous location to an airport, which isn't terribly safe either. So what starts is now a standoff. At about 4 a.m., there is a second attack. This time, not on the State Department compound, but the secret CIA annex about 300 yards away. And a group of armed militia... Again, for our best guess, uh, Ansar al-Sharia is the group, uh, will begin to assault the CIA compound. Some of these security contractors will go to the roof of the building. And their sole purpose 
Their sole purpose is to protect the American civilians inside. And again, the heroism you see here, the bravery you see here, is incredible. Uh, and we lose that when you talk politics. So that's why we're not going to do it. But they'll go on the roof, and they'll fend off easily 30, 40, 50, 60 men coming at them. I think there's three or four of them on the roof. During the fighting, one of the things that will occur is, and this is true if, if anyone is a, veter is a veteran of the Afghan war, the war in Iraq, um, these things, these battles can change very quickly. They can get out of hand in a way that's unexpected. The unexpected change that comes out of this attack comes in the form of a mortar. Now, when you think of the military capability of the United States, one mortar doesn't necessarily frighten anyone. But in a battle like this, for the attackers, that one mortar may be their biggest weapon, and they may be saving it just for the right moment. And by all accounts, it seems like that's what happens here. They'll shoot their first mortar at the CIA compound. Remember, these attackers are not trained soldiers. These are militants. These are militia. Uh, these are uh, guerrilla fighters, if you would. Their first uh, shot misses the CIA compound by uh, easily uh, 50 yards. Their second uh, mortar round and third both are direct hits. And two more Americans uh, will die as a result of that. Uh, one of them is a man named Tyrone Woods, and the other named Glenn Doherty. Again, they weren't operating as official soldiers on duty. They were being paid handsomely for this. But I can think of a few other jobs or professions where you would literally put your life on the line. And when you read about this and when you study it, uh, it's, it's overwhelming. Again, the self-sacrifice that these men made. After this occurs, uh, a convoy will arrive from local Libyans, uh, friendly Libyans on the ground of SUVs. They'll load the remaining Americans into this convoy, take them to the airport of Benghazi, uh, where there's almost a gunfight between different Libyan militias, believe it or not, and fly them to safety in Tripoli. But that's the Battle of Benghazi in total 13 hours. Um... And it's overwhelming. You know, when I started this podcast, at least in my mind when I conceptualized Season 5, I was fully prepared to do, you know, the Antietam thing. Or the Battle of Long Island thing. Uh, or the Battle of the Bulge. And who knows, we might still do that. But there's something about this story that I think just so encapsulates what we're trying to do. You know, we don't think of this as history. You know, this is still in the hands of the journalists. Uh, it'll be history soon enough. We'll probably all be gone by that point, but I was overwhelmed by this. I really was. And you can lose sight of what's really important, especially during political times with stories like this. So here's what I would say. If you want to argue over health care, or non-discretionary spending, or if Starbucks should make this cup or that cup, do it. By all means, this is America. Outrage is one of our God-given rights. It's great to live here. But we really need not make this political.
if you do make it political, make it political for the right reasons, but do not forget about what happened here. It's incredible. I mean, normally if you would see a battle with only four casualties, four deaths, Sean Smith, Christopher Stevens, Tyrone Woods, and Glenn Doherty, um, you would say that's not much of a battle. But that's so misleading. It really is. Again, as I said, there's going to be a movie about this. It looks great. Hopefully it makes this real for more people. But it does make you grateful for the people that do fight. Because the reasons aren't always for what you think. So what's the takeaway from this? If we're going to treat this as a history discussion, this is a history podcast, what is it? I'm not sure. Like I said, I'll be very frank with you. We've really been using just the facts so far here on Episode 1, Season 5 of Wartime. But I have been critical of the George W. Bush and Barack Obama strategy uh, of you know, intermingling and affairing in civil wars and promoting these groups because you don't know who's going to get these weapons and use them. And here's a case where that really came back to hurt the Americans. You flood weapons into countries. You really hope the people that use them are using them for the right reasons. They thought they were, obviously, but you don't know what they're going to do after. This is very much the world we live in. Uh, I know this was a political topic, I know this was one that's very close to us still. It's very emotional. I'm getting emotional just talking about it. We'll do something much more distant next week, I promise. But this one was special to me. This is one that I've been thinking about for a long time, and I'm glad I could share it with you. As always, with Season 4 and now Season 5, you can pick the topic. Find us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer, at Brady Kreitzer on Twitter. Let us know. This is our podcast, after all. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.